So any issue, any questions? We have some questions on some of the things that I've mentioned. When I'm done with the tabin, tabay tabin, then I would do a couple of more things I did in the theory, and then I will discuss a couple of these issues with you, just as test cases. If one finds the meaning of the Sahih in a Zayf Hadith, does that mean it is a basis of given legitimacy? Okay. I think what we're saying is you find a Hadith that conveys the same meaning as the Sahih Hadith, but the, the, the chain of this one is... But I'm going to come to this, because when I finish giving the I'm going to come back to this. I put this up, I didn't do this with you. I'm going to sort of do this when I, when I talk about the Hadith, because it's coming. Actually, it's a question on khatam. That that's coming in the issues. Milad, that's coming in the issues. Ayat karima that's coming in the issues. I just say very quickly, if Sayyidina Abu Hurairah Badanu can choose to recite the Subhanallah twelve thousand times, if somebody feels they want to recite some verse a hundred twenty thousand times, as long as they don't think it's Sunnah, I have to explain that to you. I have to just finish the. Th- I can't really do it that these the, the issues inside to finish the theory. Because I'm obviously going to use this theory, the theory to answer this. These are all, all the questions. Seem, everyone is on an issue. All, the only question was on theory was on this theory part, which I'll do in a moment. Any questions on the theory as we have come up to this far, which is the definition of sunnah, the definition of bidah, the examples from the sahaba while the Prophet was alive, and the examples from the sahaba when the Prophet had passed away. They're not sunnah. This, this is the intermediate category that I mentioned for you. Yeah. Right. Although just, just to, some people may say that those things that the Sahaba did at the Prophet's time, which he approved of, they will give that a sunnah status as well. But it's not sunnah in the sense that Sahabat min amalin nabiya sallallahu because it's still not his amal. But takrirat may happen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They're not sunnah. And according to the theoretic, they're not reprehensible bidah. But they are something new. Something new. Yeah. But there's something new, then why do that when Sunnah is there? Okay, okay. So it's a very good question. This is, okay, this is a good question. We'll take this, right? One at a time, one at a time. Right? So there are two ways to look at this, right? The tradition that I come from, that all of you guys know, is very much based on etimad. That doesn't mean we can't ask questions, right? You can ask a question, but there's a certain... I'm not, I'm not saying you did this, but I'm saying that there's a certain other of asking question, knowing that irrespective of the answer, there is one answer that I know. I mean, I'm asking the question to understand why did Ibn Hajar do it? But certainly, at least I have the itimad that the fact that he did it means it's perfectly fine. Right? Or I could ask the question, I'm going to say Abu Hurair also, like some of the people ask me, that there's so many musnoon, athkar, and du'as in Bukhari and Muslim. Imam al-Nawi himself has compiled and called a book on al-Athqar. Why would you do something different? So I could ask, I, I could go back in time and ask Abu Hurairah the same way. Ya Abu Hurairah, you yourself are the rabbi of so many ahadith, of so many of these musnoon du'as and Athqar. Why don't you just do them? Where did you come up with this 12,000 tasbih thing from? Right? So, but, it's a question that I can ask to try to understand his motivation, but I'm not in any way thinking that my question may lead to an answer that nullifies this practice. That's my attitude. Other, right? Now, this is, this is a very good question that comes in our mind. And actually, I'll be honest with you, that because this question legitimately comes in our mind, people use that. People use that to delegitimize actions. Because this is a genuine question that comes in our mind. 
I would think that, okay, let me start with the easier one, because one has to be more delicate with Sayyidina <laughs> So, Hafiz ibn Hajar Iskalani, why did he use a tasbih? Some people say, that, not about him, I'm just saying some people say about the use of a tasbih, that keeping it in your hand just reminds you of Allah. It's an aid to keep you from being ghafa. The same way people, you go on a corporate and they put their motto and vision on their office. The army puts, what is it, we serve, we play, I don't know what it is, ittihad and blah blah. People do things. People put things around them as reminders to save them from being ghafal. Perhaps, and I'm not in any way suggesting that Ibn Hajar al-Islam is even capable of ghaflat for a second, but perhaps he had this humble view of himself that I may fall into ghaflat. If I keep this thing in my hand, it's just a sensual thing that it's something I associate with me. Just like someone puts La ilaha illallah on their living room. And they know when I've got, it should be, unfortunately, our ghaflat is <laughs> kalima proof. Unloki ghaflat was not even, there's still Laila plaque in Pirbi movie there. But ideally, you would think that that living room that has Laila like a plaque would save them from watching the TV. That's why they do these things, right? And I'm going to show that also. That doing some zikr to save you from ghaflat is one thing, and doing something just for barakat, that, that, so there are, I'm, I'm getting to the negative side as well. You're going to say that I'm somewhere in the middle. Right? But I wanted to start the theory. So I would think that, uh, you know, maybe he felt that, look, obviously Sayyidina Rasulullah did not need any aid. It's like I, if I don't know how to ride a bicycle, I need training wheels. The Prophet didn't need training wheels in his zikr. I need training wheels because I don't know how to do it properly. Or I'm susceptible to ghaflat and he was impervious and it, it's impossible for him to enter the ghaflat. So these are what are called tojihat. Toji means to come up with a reason on behalf of someone out of Husnizam. I cannot claim that Allah I'm not cannot maybe Ibn Hajr himself has somewhere written why he did it, right? But these are things that one can come up with as to why perhaps he felt the need to do something that wasn't there in the time of the Prophet. Other things we can feel, let's go to say the Abu Hurairah. So I would simply say I would actually take the Amal, I will do tafsir amal sahaba bi amal sahaba. Remember the other Sahaba said, I did it out of love for Allah. So I would say that Sayyidina Abu Huraira did that tasbih 12,000 times because that was his love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Still someone could counter question, why did he not filter that love for Allah through some sunnah amal? Why did he come up with a new amal to do that? That is something I'm going to tell you, but I'll just tell you now. That you have to understand, my understanding, my understanding, is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made certain ibadat muta'ayyan, such as salah, Right? The faraiz, the wajibat. And he has made certain ibadat ghayri muta'ayyan. Those are the nawafa. Most importantly, dua and zikr. And I feel, I feel, that he made it ghayri muta'ayyan to allow a person to approach him in whatever andaz and muhabbat that he has. And that is what the sahaba were doing at the time of the Prophet. That is what the sahaba were doing after the Prophet. And that is what people continue to do. So kisi ka andaz and muhabbat Subhanallah, itne dafa kanasa tha. Kisi ka andaz imamat har bak tasbih haat me rakhne ka tha. That's how I understand. Second question. Ah, so that's why we can say that. That right. Ah, sure, sure. Take it, take it, take it. What you would do is, okay, let's say that we have an amal of one of the salaf. 
And it may not be directly contradicting word for word a hadith, but there's some sense that the hadith is giving us, and this amal is giving us a different sense. So the hadith that you quoted was this notion of hukuk al-ibad, that your body has rights over you, sleep, that your wife has rights over you, etc., etc. There's several hadith like this, right? Uh, then I've got another book on this issue, written by uh, Alama Abdullah al-Laknami, and then reprinted by Sheikh Abdul Fatah al Hudda, who is a Syrian scholar. And that is this notion that the Prophet ﷺ was giving us a general rule that he, give, he created another border for us. One border is not to do anything that's against the Sharia. Another border being created is don't engage in so much ibadah that it leads you to being deficient in your fulfilling of hukuk al-ibadah. There may be some sahaba who maybe his wife also prays all night, right? Or there may be sahaba who's not married. He's been given a general rule. That don't cause the Google Labad for every individual, that'd be different because then everybody knows even all of our relationships are different. I have different Ibad that I interact with, you have different relationships and exchanges of relationships that you're in. Some person, if I do something, it may not be violating my wife's Google Labad. If another husband did that, his wife would feel that her Google Labad are being violated, right? So I think that that general, that's how we would do the speak between this. That that we will take the general rule from there, right? But we will not say that this means that no sahaba can do that. Because otherwise, you see, then, remember what I taught you, the box in the earlier sessions, that if you take that position, that no sahaba can do that, then you have to say certain sahaba did things that were wrong. Right? And that is what everybody in the tradition seems not wanting to do. Right? Question on the theory part. Yeah, go ahead, you go ahead. One question, regarding the Uh, no, I'm going to go. I'm even going to go to Tabi and Tabi Tabi. So that's even going to be more of an example, because to show you what people do, which is new, and that is not to be found in the Sunnah. But perpetual fasting is also during the time of the Prophet Amr bin Al-As. I remember the correct name, but I believe Amr bin Al-As when he was asking the Prophet. No, no problem. I'll be giving you examples of things that even didn't occur in the time of the Prophet Yeah. Hmm. Uh, there's also like definition that like this, uh, the, the that probably even Daniel or Shaman Bandi, but uh, it's like when Bila basically when you give a particular importance to a particular place or particular role. Oh, that's also coming. If you elevate something, that's what I have to do. I just finished the stories, I have to finish this, and then I'm going to come to that. Yeah, but right. like, my question is that, for example, uh, for Sahaba, they, it's just they're doing this without giving importance that, you know, if I do this, this is the you know, best time or that's why they're doing more without uh, attributing any particular importance to their time or their action. No, I gave you a quote from Ibn Hajar Skalani commenting on the hadith in Bukhari, that this allows for ijtihad in times of worship. Then I gave you another hadith, right, from Muslim and Abu Huraira, which was mentioning number, quantity of the tasbihat, right? So there is some issue of quantity and time. But you're right, Albani and others are going to have a different view. And I'm going to put their view up also when we do the concept of Bila. Right? But up till now, there's nothing from the Salaf that has come against quantities or times. Right? Hmm. Hmm. And then there is hmm. another hadith again in Muslim 
The same thing. So, what's yeah? So, what's going to happen is basically you're going to have that line being drawn about hukukul ibad. In other words, what the muhaddisin are going to say, they're going to look at what was the purpose of the prophet. There is nothing wrong in of itself with loud recitation. The problem with loud recitation was that it was disturbing others. So, therefore, now if you do anything that is disturbing others, be it loud recitation or anything else, it actually gives more power to the hadith when you take out the muradiman of it, right? And, but it does also mean that if you engage in loud recitation that doesn't uh, disturb anyone, then that would be allowed. You wouldn't use that hadith on somebody. Because it is clearly prohibiting loud recitation when it... Right, so exactly. That, that is showing the people who are reciting loudly uh, that you should not, number one, you should not do it because they're serving And second, it's not necessary to recite loudly. Not necessary, not permissible are two separate things. Right? It's not, it wasn't necessarily for any of the Sabbath and anything that I mentioned to you. It wasn't necessary to Hamdan Kathirun Tayyibam Mubarak Al It wasn't necessary to add those words to the Takbir. It wasn't necessary for Sayyidina Bukhara to do. So exactly the not necessary is nothing. And that, the usul from that will be again that in nafal ibadat, you don't want to transgress the Google ibadat. That's basically the usul we'll take from all the, you know, that's what the usulin and muhaddisin who are the ulama of the ma'ani of the hadith, they extract these pearls for us. In the nafal ibadat, you don't want to cross the Google ibadat. That's simple. And all of these hadith that several of you have mentioned are all collectively leading to that conclusion. Alright? Yes, the approval of the Prophet ﷺ on the Amal of the Sama that they did at his time is from the Qiraat and Nabi, what we call his tacit consent. But I showed you two things. Number one, that the Sama were doing it prior to that tacit consent, and therefore they viewed it to be permissible to do so even before they read the tacit consent. Secondly, that the Prophet ﷺ received the Basharat of that Sahaba getting Jannat before he gave the tacit consent. And this, the third thing that I showed you was Amal of the Sahaba after the time of the Prophet would never receive that quote unquote tacit consent. Alright? Let's do some things of Tabin. Obviously, when you go to Tabin, Tabai Tabin, there may be people who question the legitimacy of those sources or not. So I don't know what, uh, you know, people would, you know, but till let's stick with then, uh, Imam al Zahabi is sort of, because he's Hanbali. So those things that Imam al Zahabi and Hanbali Rahimahutala, uh, mentions in a seer. So that would be, what can I use for that? That is that Abu Muslim al-Khawlani al-Yamani was a tabi who lived in the time of the Khalafat of Sayyidina Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And once he was traveling it and he got, he was lost. He was a missing person. And Sayyidina Umar radiallahu sent two men after him to look for him, to search for him. And the two men came back and reported that we found him, but he was praying and he didn't stop until we counted that he had prayed 300 rakats. And that is uh, mentioned by Imam al-Zahabi in his seer of Alam al Right? What does that mean? Some people say that, Ya rat ko saw rakat partay nafal, ye hadith se sabit nahi hai. Ye aap, forget falan rat, wo bhi baat karte hai ki aap ne kisi rat ko mutayin karna wo baat aage. Right? But sometimes people even think that, why are you even doing that? Or the same thing, are you trying to outdo the Prophet? And so we have that the Tabi were, and again, this was their Muhammad. This was their love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
So he's alone somewhere in the desert. He's lost, right? He's engaging in about right? You have free time one night and you're free. You can pray a hundred rakats. It's not a binat. It's not a sunnah either. No, 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 no. I would assume he said salam every, every two or four rakats. As, I mean, Maybe they waited. Maybe Nukaki Baba Mitukaki is Tanaskarin. Maybe Allah won them, right? But they did. Yeah. Alright. Then, uh, Imam al Nawai mentions an At Tibyan. Imam al Dhahabi mentions a book called Al Manakib. And Imam al Sayyuti mentions in Tabid al Sahifa that Sayyid ibn Jabir, who is also from the Tabi'in, recited the whole Quran in a single rakat. It's also something that sometimes people ask, Ye And we have a question that, isn't that against the adab of the Qur'an? And how would you recite it with feeling? And you recited the whole Qur'an in one rakat? That's something to think about. Obviously, if you don't feel you can do that with the proper adab, then you should definitely not do it. But the act itself, bi nafsihi, is it impermissible? Just because the Prophet didn't do it, when we have a tabi, I give you three references for that. Right? Who said that this tabi did that? He recited the whole rakat. And none of them are reprimanding that. None of them are calling it bidat. Definitely new. And definitely not sunnah. And also clearly not being reprimanded by the ulama of hadith. So therefore clearly not being viewed as something that is a negative bidat. Obviously, we will have Husnazan assume he did that recitation with all of its adab and all of the adab we know of cannot. And if somebody cannot do that, they should not do that because they must take care of the other. But if somebody can do it with those adab, as he certainly, we have his husnizan in the tabi, that he must have done. It's just if somebody does so. Right? Yeah. So then what will you do? These are individual examples. These are indiv- examples of individuals, right? But the question is that are you willing to accept that even an individual tabi can go against a hadith? Anyone can make mistake. I'm not saying mistake. Can an individual tabi go against a hadith? Okay, no, that is one argument that people love to say that they don't know the hadith. But the bur- that burden of proof would have to be on you. You have to prove they don't know hadith. Right? Right. For us, even if don't say that what they have done is wrong, See, the way I look at this, the way I look, yeah. Right. I mean, th- you know, right. Like I said, if somebody wants to feel that way, that's perfectly fine. If you if you want to just follow sunnah, that is fine. But the question is, do you want to label somebody who's doing something else as bidat? That's what we're discussing today. If you say that, look, I don't want to do what Abu Hurairah did. I don't want to do what all of these sahaba and tabin and all these events are telling me. I don't want to do a single one of them. I would say that's completely fine. Because all of these events are nafal. All of these ibadat are nafal. And there's no iltizam of nafal ibadat in anyone. Right? If you say, I don't want to do any type of dhikr that any sahaba, tabi, 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 anybody after them developed from the nafil ibadat, I'm only, only going to confine myself to the sunnah, du'as, and zikr. I'll say it's completely permissible. 
But that's what we're discussing. The question we're looking at is that people who do otherwise, is it bidat? Is everything that is not in the sunnah bidat? So that is your tabiat. And that's what I'm saying that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given that wusat in the sharia. That is your tabiat. You want to do more, you do more. You want to do less, you do less. You want your more only to be from hadith. You want your more to follow some examples from sahabat, amin, You want to come up with some new way of doing tasbih. If Sayyidina Abu Hurair did it, why can't you? If he said 12,000 times, you could say, I'll do it 1,200 times a day. Just. So the question is, what is permissible? When Abu Hurair became a bidah, was that established from one of the Sahabas that he said, okay, what he did? I mean, you would think so. If all of these people are narrating it, and I'm sure that he would have, it would have taken a long time to have done that, and given that he was teaching so many hadith, I'm assuming many sahab and tabi would be coming to him, and they'd probably find him doing that, and that he's busy, and so it would be common knowledge, right? Because you see, the text capture knowledge. It's not that you're going to find something mentioned in the text that was not knowledge at the time. If it's been textualized, you can reasonably assume that it was common knowledge and common practice at the time. The texts are just capturing reality. They're not themselves reality. They're just an image or a reflection of that reality. That the haq of that, there are different hukuk of the Qur'an, right? It, one haq is understanding it. So I think the kirat, right? And it may also be possible that that tabi was such a mahir, very probable, such a mahir, uh, such an expert in the ma'ani of the Qur'an. You know, like let's say I teach some book a thousand times, I could probably read it very quickly and still do justice to all its meanings. Whereas people like me and you who are so distant and divorced from the meanings of the Qur'an, we would inevitably much, much slower. So that's one way to look at it. Another way is to think that the haq... What, yeah. context, the it's possible, it's possible. I mean, that, that's what, I mean, I, we're going to sort of brief it, but that's why I wanted to show you all of these events. That even they may be individual, but when you add them up in totality, when you have so many Saba, Tabin, and Tabai Tabin doing things that are new, and you have all of the great Imams of Hadith and Fiqh narrating their accounts and none of them saying negative. So it reaches a mass which is, can no longer be reduced to a single act by a single person. Right? And then, to come up with the theory that each and every one of them didn't know a particular hadith. And by the way, none of the other things that we discussed were against a hadith. It's only one example that you have pointed out there is a hadith that exists that suggests this should not be done. Otherwise, none of the other examples even had that issue of being against a hadith. Right? Yeah. 